Would you join me in prayer? Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, that you speak to us by your word and by your spirit. And I pray, God, that we would be open to hearing from you today, Lord, and that we would respond to what you have to say to us. We ask these things in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. So we are continuing this morning in our series on the Bible and God's mission. And throughout this series, we're going to be taking a look at the narrative of the biblical story and paying particular attention to the work that God is doing to fill the whole earth with His glory. Last week, we focused on God's purposes for all of creation. We saw that all of creation, human and non-human alike, were made for His glory. We are made to point to God. We are made to reflect His creativity and His mercy and His provision and His power. And in the scriptures, we see that God takes great pleasure in the works of His hands, especially in us, those that He made in His image. And He invites us into a unique relationship with Him that no other creature on earth enjoys. Today, we are going to continue to talk about God's mission to fill the whole earth with his glory as we take a closer look at God's plans for human beings as he creates them male and female in his image. So we're going to do three different things this morning as we look at this topic. First, we're going to look at why God created human beings as male and female and about what God's purposes are for sex and for marriage. Secondly, we're going to be talking about God's good boundaries for sex and marriage. And third, we're going to talk about how we as the church need to take very seriously our call to be faithful witnesses to the world about God's plans and purposes for sex and marriage. I want to give you a bit of a warning. My sermon is a bit longer today. Um, Pastor Rick is having a bit of an influence on me. And uh, so anyways, just a heads up. So we're going to begin this morning by taking a look at the foundational passage about marriage in the Bible, and that's in the book of Genesis. And what we learn very quickly is that marriage is not first about us at all. There's no doubt a lot of confusion about marriage in our culture today, many broken relationships, confusion about marriage as a relationship between a man and a woman, and this is because we've forgotten or because maybe we never knew in the first place. The foundational purposes for marriage. Marriage is not about us. It is not about our personal self-fulfillment. It is not about guilt-free sex. It is not about tax breaks or spousal rights. Marriage is not given for the purpose of making us happy. Marriage is not for the solving of the problem of our human loneliness. As we're going to see today, the gift of marriage between a man and a woman has purposes far beyond the happiness and the fulfillment and the satisfaction of the two people involved in it. There are two things that I want to say about the purposes of marriage today. First, is that marriage is one of the ways, one of the ways, that God has chosen to complete the mission of filling the earth with His glory. Marriage is for mission. Secondly, marriage points us to a person. Marriage is for the purpose of pointing us to Christ 
and his love for the church. Marriage is for mission, and marriage points us to a person, to Christ and the church. All of the good things that come with marriage, romance and sex and companionship and friendship and children, all of these things are most fully enjoyed when our marriages are established on these foundational purposes. First, marriage is for mission. If you haven't already, turn with me to the book of Genesis. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, and then through a large section of Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image. In our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. God creates human beings and he gives them two tasks. One is to fill the whole earth and secondly to rule over creation. And in Genesis chapter 2, the creation story uh, zooms in to God's purposes for human beings. Uh, We we get a a more detailed look at God's creation of Adam and Eve. So look at Genesis chapter 2, verses uh, 5 through 9, and verse 15. It says, When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground, But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil." Verses 10 through 14 then describe the garden a bit more and the location of the garden. And then in verse 15 it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. Why did God put Adam in the garden? Was it so that Adam and Eve could enjoy a never-ending vacation in paradise? I think that's often what we think of when we think of the Garden of Eden. And we just usually think of Adam and Eve just enjoying daily leisure on the beaches of Eden. But that's not the picture that we get in Genesis chapter 2. God took the man, he places him in the garden. Why? To work it and to take care of it. To work and to plant and to care for God's creation for his own benefit, for Adam and Eve's own benefit to be sure, but also for the benefit of the garden and for the glory of God. We'll talk about this more next week, but it's very important to take note that Adam was called to work before sin ever entered into the world. Our work in the world is a good thing. What happens after the fall is that our work becomes frustrated and frustrating, but before, God gives us good work to do. But what does that have to do with marriage? 
The answer to that question is everything. Because marriage is for mission, for the task that God has given to us. In verse 18, it says that it was not good for man to be alone, so I will make a helper suitable for him. Eve was God's provision for Adam first as his helper to carry out this task that God has given to him. Eve was not given first to be Adam's companion, although she certainly would be that. She was not given first to be his lover, although she would certainly be that. She was given first to be his helper, to come alongside him in the task that God gave to him. Marriage is for mission. Marriage is given for the purpose of helping us carry out the calling that God gives to each of us in our lives. Now let's talk a little bit about this idea of helper. Because we need to understand what kind of helper Eve was going to be for Adam. Sometimes we think of the word helper as someone who's maybe inferior to the person that is needing help. You know, and sometimes I invite my six-year-old daughter, hey, Gloria, why don't you, you come and help me in the yard? She doesn't really help me, right? Um, she's daddy's little helper, okay? She can hand me a hammer or whatever it may be. But this is the farthest thing from the understanding of what this word helper means in Genesis. The Hebrew word here in Genesis chapter 2 is the word ezer. The word ezer. And the word Ezer is used in the Old Testament 24 times. In 21 of those times, the word Ezer is used to describe God. 21 times in Scripture, God is described as our help, as our Ezer. And when God is described as our helper, as our easer, what he is saying is that God brings resources to us that we do not have and that we desperately need. In other words, when God is our easer, it is saying that God is necessary for our life and for our survival. This is the kind of help that Eve brings to Adam. The help that Adam receives from Eve to accomplish the task that God gave for him to do is not simply to make things a little bit easier for Adam. You know, to hand him the hammer when he needs it. The help that Eve gives to Adam is also not only companionship. What this passage tells us is that Eve brings resources to the task that God has given to humanity that Adam does not have on his own. The task that God gave to Adam to be fruitful and to multiply and to rule the whole earth and to subdue it. These things would not be possible without the resources that Eve brings as Adam's easer, as his help. Let me repeat this in case anyone has missed it. When it says in Genesis 2 that Eve was created as a help for Adam, in no way does it suggest that Eve is inferior to Adam but that Eve instead was created to help Adam along, or that she was just kind of there to help Adam do whatever he wanted to do. What this text tells us is that God gave human beings together a task to fulfill, and they cannot fulfill it on their own. Adam needed more than just another pair of hands. There is something about male personhood and female personhood functioning together that makes this task that God has given us Possible. I think the way that we usually interpret Genesis chapter 2 is that God created Eve in order to solve the problem of Adam's loneliness. 
Adam was lonely, and so he created Eve. Well, this may be partly true. It was not the first reason that God gave Eve to Adam. God did not say, it is not good for Adam to be alone, and so I will make for him a friend, or a companion, or a lover. This passage is talking about Adam's work in the garden, his task. And it says that it is not good for him to be alone, and so I will give him a helper suitable for him. Throughout the scriptures, there are all sorts of relationships other than marriage that satisfy our human need for fellowship and love and belonging. The friendship between David and Jonathan. The friendship between Paul and his companions. Jesus and his disciples. Jesus and Mary and Martha and Lazarus. God's provision for our human need for love and acceptance and belonging is not marriage. It is the church. It is the church. Marriage is one provision that God provides within the church to address this need that we have for love and companionship. Of course it is. But it is not the only one. And we do serious disservice to single people if marriage is seen as the high value and the only relationship that fulfills those needs. Marriage is not the primary solution to the human problem of loneliness and then our need for companionship. The primary solution for these things is our brothers and sisters in Christ. Katie is my sister in Christ before she is my wife. Marriage, though, is for mission. It is one of the means that God has given to us to fulfill our God-given calling as human beings to be fruitful and to multiply and to rule over the earth. Why are these two things possible with males and females together in a way that's impossible with only one or the other? Well, the first one is easy. (laughs) Only males and females can be fruitful and multiply and increase in number. God created males and females differently with these different biology that would make our filling of the earth possible. We were made in the image of God, human beings. And when living as God intended us to live, we reflect God's glory in a way that no other creature can. And so this is why God gave us as human beings this task to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth so that the whole earth would be filled with those who were made in his image who reflect his glory. In a couple weeks, we will talk about how sin entered into the world and how we too often spoil the glory of God on the earth. But we were created and we are being redeemed to reflect God's glory in the whole earth. So God gave Adam a helper, one that was the same as him, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, but also different from him. Not a man. She would be woman. And when they came together, they would be able to produce others like themselves, others made in the image of God who would fill the earth with the glory of God. And the second part of this task, to rule over creation or to fulfill the task that God has given to us, the calling could now be done in partnership with another person that was different than him who brings resources to that task that he does not have. And they become joined together as one flesh in the service of God. That is the purpose of marriage. Marriage is for mission. Marriage is for greater and more effective service for God. And I think that this radically changes the way that we view marriage and the questions that we ask about whether or not we should marry or or who we should marry. 
Uh, The idea that loneliness was the primary reason for why God created Eve creates problems for us. Because we begin to see marriage as the solution to our loneliness. Or if not our loneliness, we see marriage as a way to fulfill uh, some emptiness in our life, to fulfill our desires. No husband or wife can completely fulfill those things for us. But the reason for the first marriage between Adam and Eve was not to solve the problem of loneliness or to fulfill Adam and Eve in some way. But it was for the sake that Adam and Eve could fulfill God's plans and purposes for the world to fill the earth with his glory. And with human beings then who then rule over creation wisely and in a very complementary way. And so our motivation for getting married in the first place must be this. Joyful, shared service to God. Not our own personal self-fulfillment or as a solution to our loneliness. For those of you who are here today who may be considering getting married, what is your motivation for getting married? Is your motivation focused on yourself or is it focused on the calling that God has for you in your life? Our motivation for getting married must be because we are convinced that this other person will help me to serve God better than I could on my own. Which leads me to a very, another very important point. You know what else is for mission? Singleness. Singleness is also for mission. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. In this chapter, Paul has a long extended teaching about marriage and singleness and whether to marry or not to marry. And in verses 32 through 35, in verse 38, Paul is very clear that the single life provides opportunities for us that the married life does not. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 32. I would like you to be free from concern... An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. Verse 38. So then he who marries does right, but he who does not marry does even better. What does Paul say here? Paul says that the single life, that in the single life there is potential for undivided devotion to God. Paul's focus in the previous verses of this chapter is on the kingdom of God, the most important thing The time is short, Paul says. Our lives are to be lived with an eager anticipation and expectancy of the Lord's return. And so Paul is saying, if there's any distraction, any division in your life, then get rid of it. That's the perspective and the context of these words. And Paul is clear that neither singleness or marriage is more honorable to God. What he says is that the single life is better in that it has the potential, the opportunity for undivided service to God. Both singleness and marriage are both God-honoring ways of life. But Paul suggests that those, the one who is single will not have the same worries and will be able to serve God more freely without the encumbrances that marriage and parenting may have. 
For the person who is seeking first the kingdom of God, both marriage and singleness are for mission. Our questions about should I marry or should I not marry are not answered by the typical questions that we ask ourselves. Am I attracted to this person? Will they make me happy? Etc., etc., etc. Instead, the main lens that we view marriage is through the lens of our service to God. Will this marriage help my service to God? And God calls different people to both of these callings for different reasons and for different purposes. I think we need to confess that the evangelical church has often not done well at honoring the calling of single people. The church needs single people as examples of men and women who live undivided lives of devotion to God. Both the state of singleness and the state of marriage are both gifts to the church, and both of them, when practiced rightly within the body of Christ, both of them are opportunities for greater service to God. For the single person, it should spur them on to recognize that they have more time and energy to direct to God and for his mission. For the married person, the scripture teaches you that your spouse is given to you as your helper to offer to you resources that you do not have to carry out whatever mission God has given to you. Marriage and singleness are both for mission. Point number two, marriage points us to a person. Marriage points us to Christ and his love for the church. At the end of Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, it says this, A man will leave his father and his mother and be united with his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And in the book of Ephesians, Paul is talking about marriage and the relationships that husbands and wives should have in the household and what that looks like. And Paul quotes this verse, and he says that marriage is a profound mystery. And really, all that he is talking about at the end of the day is Christ and the church. Marriage ultimately, is an image or a parable of Christ and his relationship to the church. The way that a husband is called to love his wife, the way that he is called to actively pursue her, the way that he is called to lay everything down for her, the way that he lives his life for her well-being is intended to reflect the way that Christ loves the church. The ideal of marriage, a lifelong commitment to one another, is a reflection of the commitment of Christ to his people. The fidelity and commitment of a marriage relationship, this relationship that is intended to be until death, is meant to point us to the relationship that Christ has for us. That he will go with us to the death. Is that not what Christ did for us? When a husband and wife on their wedding day commit to loving one another forever and sacrificing for one another in good times and bad, better for worse, richer for poorer, they are speaking about this covenant that is ultimately known in God's love for his people. So in Ephesians, Paul gives us all these instructions about how husbands and wives should act with one another in marriage. And he says, really, this is all a profound mystery because it's talking about Christ in the church. Our marriages point beyond themselves to the relationship that Christ has with his church. The unity that husband and wife experience physically through the act of sex, emotionally in their day-to-day life, the single-mindedness that comes through years of being together, the, the knowledge of one another and the intimacy that is created, all of these things point to our relationship with Christ. 
For this reason, the husband will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about Christ and the church. Marriage ultimately points beyond itself to the spiritual reality of God's desires to become unified with us, his people. And because of this, because of this, because marriage points beyond itself, is beyond our own self-fulfillment, our own desires, God has provided for us good boundaries for sex and marriage so that we can know how these very human acts and practices and relationships can best point to this spiritual reality. Sex is to be practiced within the commitment of marriage between a man and a woman because it is a physical act that binds two people together in a spiritual way. A physical act that has a purpose beyond our physical enjoyment of it. The world's view of sex is profoundly self-centered rather than God-centered. Sex is about personal gratification rather than worship. This can be seen no clearer than in the multi-billion dollar porn industry. Pornography is a powerful, powerful force in our world. I've experienced my own struggles with it in my life, and I know how powerful it is. And I know how profoundly selfish and self-centered it is. Our view of sex and sexuality must turn away from ourselves and toward God and His purposes for it. The consistent message throughout the Bible about sexual practice is that it is to be practiced exclusively between a man and a woman within the covenant commitment of marriage. Any sexual practice, pornography, premarital sex, extramarital sex, all of these practices are centered on the self and our own desires. And this is an important place for us to talk about the issue of homosexuality. As you know, that this is a topic that is alive today in our culture, and we need to think biblically about it. If things continue in the way that we are going now, our children and our grandchildren will most likely grow up in a culture where gay marriage is encouraged and considered normal. And because of this, because it is such an alive topic today, we need to speak about it in the church and also to talk together to consider how to respond as a church to our neighbors who don't agree with our views. So before I talk about this issue, I want to be very clear about a couple of things. First, I want to be clear that homosexual practice is not the unforgivable sin. Homosexual practice is just as sinful and no worse than the thousands of sins that I commit every single day. I'm talking about homosexuality today within the context of this sermon about marriage and God's purposes for marriage because there are many who are confused about what marriage and sex is all about and are wondering, what does Broadway teach about these things? The truth is, our culture increasingly only allows one perspective to be heard, and all of us need a different word. Also, There are no doubt men and women in this room who experience same-sex attraction. This is a struggle for you, that you are trying to surrender this aspect of your experience to God. And you need to hear today a different word. And that word is that this church is with you and not against you. You are being told more and more that your experience of same-sex attraction is who you are. 
that it is a part of your identity, that it cannot be changed, you need to hear a different word. A recent very popular song by Macklemore celebrates and affirms homosexuality with the constant refrain in the song over and over again, I can't change even if I tried, even if I wanted to, I can't change. I can't change even if I tried, even if I wanted to, I can't change. The LGBTQ community champions the ideas of freedom and liberty, but to me that does not sound like freedom at all. I can't change even if I wanted to. Even if I wanted to, I can't change. That sounds like slavery to me. You are not a slave. In Christ you are free. The consistent message of the Bible about marriage is that it is between a man and a woman. The foundational passage that we looked at today from Genesis is clear that God has a unique purpose for his complementary creation of male and female together. Jesus himself affirms this view of marriage in Matthew chapter 19 when talking about marriage. Jesus refers back to this creational story. He says, haven't you read that at the beginning the creator made them male and female? And he said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. When Jesus chooses to teach about the sacredness of marriage, he points back to the creation story that we've looked at today. God created male and female for marriage. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 10, I would encourage you to, to turn there with me. This is a, another example in the scriptures of the teaching of homosexuality as, as sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Paul writes here about nor male prostitutes nor homosexual offenders. And these are two different Greek words that describe male homosexual practice. One word that describes the passive sexual act and the other the active sexual act. In other words, Paul describes homosexual practice and places it within the context of those who are wrongdoers. Notice, though, this is a list. It is a list of one of many different sins. And listen to how Paul ends this list. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. He does not end this list with condemnation. He ends with hope. The consistent biblical message is that sex is for the covenant relationship of husband and wife in marriage. And also, the consistent biblical message is that none of us, none of us have lived up to that standard. None of us. If you are one who wrestles with same-sex attraction, you are in a room full of people who are with you in your struggle to honor God with your bodies sexually. 
You are not alone in your particular struggle with same-sex attraction, and you are not alone in the more general struggle that all of us have to honor God with our bodies sexually. And so Paul finishes, That is what some of you were, but you have been washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. The gospel is for all of us, for all of us who have failed to use our sexuality in the way that we should. So this morning... Whether you struggle with pornography or if you have failed to be faithful to your spouse or if you are presently in a relationship where you are having sex outside of the bond of marriage or whether you struggle with same-sex attraction, the gospel is for you. You can be washed. You can be sanctified. You can be whole. Friends, the world needs the church to be a faithful witness to the message of God's plan for sex and marriage. So be very quick here as we finish, but I want us to think about the way that we as Christians are to respond to our present culture's climate about sexuality. I want us to consider our public response to our culture's view of sexuality, our personal response with individuals that we may know, friends of ours who we may know who struggle with these issues or who maybe don't struggle at all but who are living in ways that don't glorify God. And finally, I want to talk about our own inward, private responses. Public response, our personal or interpersonal responses, and also our private responses. First, publicly. There is a lot of talk among Christians today about defending the traditional definition of marriage. And I just simply want us to remind us today that marriage is defined by God and not by our government. And I think, I think that our rhetoric about marriage is often defensive, it's often reactive, rather than confident and positive that God will work out his good in the world. The truth is, if every state in our union changes their constitution that says that marriage is open to all other kinds of unions, it doesn't change the reality of what God says marriage is. Congress could make a law tomorrow saying that black is white, but it wouldn't make it so. In the same way, as the church, let's be confident in who God is and what he says his purposes are for marriage. Traditional marriage does need defending, but even more than that, it needs to be practiced. It needs to be practiced by the church. The world needs the church to be faithful in our practices of marriage by encouraging strong, faithful, lifelong marriages and for offering grace and forgiveness and mercy for those who fail in those. And also by being a support to single people who are called to be in the church. Publicly, we need to remember, publicly we need to remember that the world does not read the Bible, it reads Christians. Our reactive and our defensive rhetoric often does not reflect our confidence in God's plans and purposes for the world. And our marriage practices in the church sometimes do not reflect God's plans and purposes. So publicly, we need to practice traditional marriage. Secondly, how should we respond personally to those that we know in our lives, our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, who are struggling with same-sex attraction or who simply disagree with our view altogether? As followers of Jesus, we need to remember that our focus is to turn our friends toward a relationship with Christ not toward behavioral change. 
Such were some of you. But you have been washed, you have been sanctified in the name of Jesus and by the Spirit. Of course, over time, God will use us to speak truth into people's lives about their behavior. But our friends need a relationship with Christ first. And it is only after that will any real change in that sanctification can take place at all. And you don't need to be anxious. God will do the work that he wants to do in people's lives. And we have to trust that he will do this as we are faithful in our relationships to point them to Christ and not see our friends as projects to fix. Do not be anxious about changing people's behavior. Instead, be earnest and sincere about turning people to Jesus. He will do the work of changing their behavior in his time and in his way, just like he's doing for all of us. Katie and I learned this lesson some years ago. Katie, I had an opportunity to, to lead a young woman to Christ. And at that time, she was, she was living with her boyfriend, and we just really struggled. What do we do in this relationship? Do we tell her now that she's become a Christian, that she needs to move out? And after prayer and discernment, we just thought, let's trust God in this. And after two or three months, she moved out on her own. God will do the changing of people's behavior as we are faithful to witness to him. If we have an opportunity, if the question is asked, of course, tell the truth. But don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. Finally, what should our private inward response be to our culture's view of sexuality? Well, as always, we need to be a people of repentance. It's very easy, either very literally or in our own hearts, to do a lot of finger pointing, to create an us versus them mentality, and to think of the LGBTQ community as our great enemy of the church. It's not. It is not. Our enemy is sin and the evil one who is seeking to kill and destroy all of us. And our victory over that enemy comes through repentance, comes through confessing our sin by saying like Paul, I am the worst of all sinners and receiving the forgiveness that is offered in Jesus and by walking in it. We need to remember Paul's words, and this is what some of you were, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of Jesus and by the Spirit of God. Friends, this is the gospel. In Christ, all of us need and can find forgiveness from our wandering away from God's plans and purposes for us, sexually or otherwise. We are broken people. We have failed to honor God with our bodies. And through Christ, we can be set free from our sin. And in our brokenness, we can be made whole. We're going to enter into a time of communion. I would invite you to pray with me. As we take communion or in the song after communion today, certainly invite you, if you want to come forward to pray, uh, please feel free to do that. The altar over here, if you come over here, uh, there will be an elder or someone else who will come and join you for prayer. If you'd like to pray on your own, please feel free to come to this side and to pray. Please feel free to do this at any time during communion or during the song of response afterwards. But let's pray together. Our God in heaven, you are good and you are loving and you are merciful and you are just. And God, we thank you for showing us your way for us. And God, I pray that we would trust in your good boundaries for us and that we would seek to walk in them with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. Amen.